0: Welcome to worship with Dawson Memorial Baptist Church. At Dawson, we seek to be found faithful as God's people as we become and help others become faithful servants of Jesus Christ. Now join us as we worship God through the teaching of his word in today's message. Church, as we continue to worship this morning, I'm gonna encourage you to take your copy of God's word. Turn with me to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 24. As we continue in our series entitled The Life of David, I wasn't with you last week. I had the privilege of preaching at Sixth Avenue Baptist Church. Sixth Avenue was planted in 1881, 142 years of faithfulness that congregation has had in Birmingham and far beyond. The city of Birmingham was founded in 1871. There are not a whole lot of institutions, churches. Anything that goes back that far. And it was a privilege to be invited to preach by my friend, Dr. John Cantalow, who has preached here at Dawson. Their church and our church have had decades of a relationship, oftentimes through the shared love of music. And we've had variations of their choirs here with us, other members that have led. We've had joint Christmas celebrations together that 6th Avenue and Dawson, along with other churches, have been able to join together. So it was a privilege to be there. In my absence, Dr. Joshua Del Risco, our church planning pastor at New Life Fellowship in Fultondale, preached. And I know you were blessed to have Dr. Del Risco leading you. It was a wonderful message and a wonderful reminder of our partnership together in church planning. Five churches that are Spanish-speaking congregations has been our prayer and our goal for the next five years. And so that church plant that Joshua was pastoring in Fultondale was that first plant. And we've seen God continue to open up doors, and we have a church planter named Humberto, who is in Huntsville, and Pipe, who is in Alabaster, and we have two others that we are conversation and prayerfully God will continue to lead us as we we seek to be found faithful not only in the walls of this congregation, but in our state, our nation, and also the world. As we gather here this morning, our, our world is in pain. There are many places that are pressing points uh, that need our intercession as Christians. But there's no doubt that many of you came into this very sanctuary with your heart heavy and, 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 and your knees worn as this last week you've prayed for Israel and the conflict that is occurring as we speak now. I think it would be fitting for us before we go into our message here for us to collectively join our hearts together, our minds together, to pray very specifically, I'm going to invite you to bow your head. And as we pray, I'm going to invite you to pray along four prayer prompts. As we pray for Israel in the midst of this conflict that they're in, in response to... The brutal and barbaric attacks that occurred eight days ago, and the repercussions of that continue to be before us. So let's pray as a congregation. First, let us pray for God's protection and mercy upon millions of Israelis and also Palestinian civilians that right now are in harm's way. Let us pray. Would you join me as we pray for God's peace and comfort of all thousands of families that are grieving the loss of loved ones, even this morning? you join me in praying for those that are on the front line of providing aid, but also on the front line of even missions this very morning and hundreds, over a a hundred is Israeli civilians and and others across the world that are are being held hostage now and and praying for those missions and, and their safe return to family members and friends. Let us pray. God, would you hear our prayers? In the name of your Son and our Savior, we pray these. Amen. Church family, 1 Samuel chapter 24 is our guide this morning as we continue in a series simply entitled The Life of David. He is in a moment of his life that is a bad nightmare that he longs to awake from. Charles Dickens in Introduction to Great Expectations says simply and memorably that they were the best of times and they were the worst of times. And what we're tracking with David is that he lived the best of times and he lived the worst of times. He is pulled from obscurity as as he's the youngest of Jesse's sons that Samuel would anoint to be the next king. Never saw it coming. An exclamation mark in his life. It was the best of times. But he was relegated. obscurity, shepherding his father's flock after that moment where where he becomes the most unlikely of kings. It was sort of the worst of times, but obscurity, as you know, will not be David's destiny. And so he, he is pulled in the most unlikely of ways to KO this heavyweight champion, Philistine, that is named Goliath because God was with him. And his faith in God gives not only David, but gives Israel, not only Israel, but God the victory. You know the story. I mean, it was the best of times. He receives a wife, not only any wife, but Saul's daughter who becomes his wife. More than that, he, he receives this cushy promotion from the, the pasture land to the very palace here. It's the best of times, wasn't it? Not quite. You know this about Saul, you know the story here. So Saul was a jealous, jealous, jealous maniac. And he has this tyrannical grip upon the kingdom and he will not let it go. And so he sets his focus on David and he wants nothing less than David's head. He wants to kill David and silence the threat. And this is where we pick up the story here. David's wife has been taken from him. Saul has removed her, given her to another husband. He has lost the protection of the palace. He is surrounded in chapter 22 by 400, just misfits of the kingdom, people that were protesting Saul's rule. Saul has this heavy taxation burden upon the people and they stand up and they say, not not on our watch. And they become like David, fugitives of the kingdom. And so this isn't the mighty army that he would imagine. But by the time we get to chapter 24, those 400 men become 600 men and they're fleeing in the wilderness and Saul is on their heels. And we read, when Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel. You see the odds here? 3,000 to David's 600. And went to seat David and his men in the front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave so many reasons to love the Bible. There's so many reasons to be surprised by the Bible. Oftentimes we think of the Bible in this sort of hallmark card kind of cliche way. And we think of it being overly sanitized and it's just not, it's not at all. I mean, there's murder in the Bible because there's murder in this world. There's adultery in the Bible because there's adultery in this world. There's betrayal in the Bible because there's betrayal in this world. And Saul finds himself in this vulnerable position, not knowing that all of David's men, along with David, are able to see him. And these men, they draw their swords, ready to strike, knowing in their mind that God has provided a way for Saul and his threats to be silenced. David pulls out his sword tiptoes in the cave, comes up silently behind Saul. The smiles are upon 600 men, knowing in this moment their debts are going to be abolished, knowing in this moment that they're going to be freed, knowing in this moment they're going to have a coronation for David. This is the moment they've been praying for. This is the moment for years that they've been fleeing from Saul to be able to end his threats in this moment. And they look to their amazement when David slices just the corner of Saul's robe. Talk about a dramatic letdown. You can imagine the men in this moment saying, he's a coward. How how would he fail us in this moment? You can imagine them trying to get closer in this moment, but we read in the text in verse 5 that David's heart struck him. Because he cut off a corner of Saul's robe, he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he's the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. All of David's problems could have ended in that moment as he killed Saul. Uh, David's throne that was rightly his, he could take in that moment the freedom of 600 men who had been on the run. Their freedom could have been in that moment here, but David does something else. David actually fulfills the very words of his son Solomon in Proverbs chapter 16 when he refuses to take matters in his own hands. He's living out these words. When a man's ways pleases or please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Isn't it interesting to know that David's son Solomon writes these words inspired by the Holy Spirit? Don't you think that the Holy Spirit would have used this very story in Solomon's mind as he's pinning these words and the Holy Spirit's using this moment to write these very words? David's not passive. I think that's a temptation to think in this passage at this moment to pause it and say, David must be a coward. David's lying down. David's not defending himself. Isn't there a, a place to defend yourself? This is in this moment, should, should David not have done and struck down Saul? But notice the, the reasoning of David as he doesn't lie down, but he confronts wisely the anointed king Saul. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. Verse nine, David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day, your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today in my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you. But I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See my father. Notice in this moment, David's holding up the little corner of his robe. He he says to Saul, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there's no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. May the Lord, verse 15, the very key to David's reasoning here. May the Lord, therefore, be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. David's response to Saul's injustice, David's response to Saul's tyrannical attacks, David's response to Saul's unrelenting pursuit of him, not for days, not for weeks. At this point, we've got years going on in this story here. All of this is going to be responded, not with the sword by David, but with the truth. David defends himself, he tries to reason with Saul, He desires for the truth to prevail and for it to capture Saul's heart. And he has a corner of his very robe, which is an insurance policy, at least he hopes it is, against Saul attacking him in the future. David doesn't lie down in this moment. David wisely pleads with Saul to end this whole thing. The only thing in that cave that was greater than David's fear of Saul. The only thing that was greater than all the David's men's, their, their hatred towards Saul, the only thing that was greater than that was David's trust in God's sovereign plan. David's trust in bringing the kingdom to him. David shows us something here. David could have taken a shortcut to the throne a shortcut that would have led through the the very choice of murdering Saul but but Saul uh, David did not take that shortcut to his freedom. David did not take that shortcut to the throne. You know why he didn't? Because he knew that shortcut would be a spiritual dead end for him. And do you, do you notice something about this passage? Do you hear something in this passage that has a ring a familiarity to you? Is there something about this showdown in the wilderness that sort of says, doesn't that remind you of another showdown? I think it does remind us of another showdown. It reminds us of another showdown of a far greater enemy than Saul and a far greater king than David. In Luke chapter four, after Jesus's baptism, he is led by the spirit into the very wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights he fasts. And then the serpent, Satan, meets him. A showdown in the wilderness. Three temptations that the enemy gives Jesus in this moment. One of the temptations, Jesus has this panoramic view of all the kingdoms of the world, and Satan in that moment says to him, I'll give it all to you right now. All you have to do is say so. You know what Satan is doing? He is bartering with Jesus. He's placing the, the rule and the reign, the very throne that Jesus will sit on, and he's saying, "You can have it all right now, without the cross. without suffering, without pain, without Gethsemane. You can have it all right now. I will give it to you. He's bartering for our souls. If Jesus says, yes, he bypasses the cross and through him bypassing the cross, we do not have hope. We do not have salvation. Satan is saying to Jesus, here's a shortcut. Take it. Don't don't think... I know you're tempted to think, well, maybe so. Maybe so for David and Saul. Maybe so for Jesus and Satan. But, but there's no real way that this intersects my life, right? I mean, none of us in this room probably feel any kind of threat that we're going to become fugitives, running from uh, the, the state, fleeing into the old mining Uh, you know, mountains of Red Mountain there and the caves there hiding out for our life lest somebody find us there. That's probably not on any of our five-year plans here. And, And rightfully so, it's not. But don't think, church, don't think that there isn't still an enemy who still whispers. Here's a shortcut. You're single. 28 years old, mid thirties, praying for a spouse, pursuing relationships some have been good that ended disastrous. Your heart has felt that pain before. And out of the blue, these last four or five months you've met somebody. So attractive great job, great personality, great harmony and chemistry that you have with them, except for one thing, everything seems perfect. Except for one thing, everything seems to be that this is the person here. And that one thing is this person doesn't share your faith. This person doesn't share your commitment to the church, and you find yourself at a fork in the road, will you choose a shortcut? A, a, a shortcut that leads to a dead end? Years ago Eugene Peterson, who is a pastor and professor at Regent College in Vancouver, I read a book where he has this phrase, a long obedience in the same direction. And the path of obedience as Christians oftentimes is a path that, that leads down the hard path, the long path, the path that requires patience, the path that requires trust. And most of us in this sanctuary, when we're tempted with a shortcut, we're, we're tempted with a way in that moment where, where we don't have to trust him. We can take it into our own hands. And we begin to doubt His good purpose is for us. And it's in that moment that a shortcut stands before us that always leads to a dead end. 16 years old, you're a junior in high school. You're taking three AP classes, maybe four this year, trying to graduate with a GPA that impresses schools in this state and far beyond this state here trying to get a semester under your belt before you go to school, maybe even further into your second semester of the year and and there's a little bit of stress on you. There's a whole lot of stress on you. You're trying to have a a good junior year, trying to be engaged not only in the classroom, but all the extracurricular things that you're committed to. You've got an AP U.S. history class that you're taking, and you have a big midterm paper that you have to write, and you you tried to get ahead of the responsibility, and you tried to work on it a little bit two weeks ahead of time, a week ahead of time, but that's really hard to do, isn't it? And that week of preparation turns into a few days, and you still don't get around to it, and it's the night before. There you've got to write the paper and in that moment you google the topic that has been assigned to you and you come to a page that seems to have all that you need and all you have to do is copy and paste and embed it in your google document it's a shortcut that leads to a dead end It is a shortcut that compromises your character and your integrity. Oh, it is before you, it is the easier path. But I'm here to tell you that the path of obedience is oftentimes the longer path, It is oftentimes the harder path. Shortcuts often lead to spiritual dead ends. You've been married for 10 years seven-year-old and a five-year-old, your taxi service. Between you and your spouse, you get them to dance practices and recitals and soccer practice and school and back and pick up and Monday turns into Tuesday and Tuesday turns into Wednesday and September is October and November is before you and it's just flashing. You're trying your best to keep work and family and kids, all of that balanced here, but there are bills to pay and there's not enough time in the day. And you come to this place where you realize that there, there's a coldness and distance that has crept in to your relationship with your spouse. You, she doesn't say anything about it. He doesn't say anything about it. You both know about it. You both feel it. You think, should, should marriage be this hard? Should it take this much work and this much investment? The, the long road is the long road of investment and intentionality and communication and all of those things, but there's a shortcut. Oh, you are denying that it's a shortcut, but there's somebody at work And it's so easy to talk with them. Seem to get all your jokes. The connection seems instantaneous and has blossomed over the months and maybe even longer. And and your heart and your mind is beginning to wander. And I am here to tell you that is a shortcut that will always lead to a dead end. David has offered a shortcut to the throne, and he takes the harder path, the path that is the longer path of a trust in God's timing and God's plan. Jesus has a shortcut that is thrown before him in the wilderness, a shortcut to the throne, and he chooses the harder path for your soul and my soul, the path of suffering, the path of the cross that ultimately leads to the resurrection and ultimately leads to him sitting on a throne that is above all thrones. And you, who are called to take up your cross, there will be a whisper. They will say to you, maybe even this week, put it down, there's an easier road. Here's a shortcut, let us pray. Thank you for joining us today. To learn more about our family of faith or to learn how to become a follower of Jesus, please visit DawsonChurch.org. Until next time, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.